Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Guy and if you don't yet know, you can join us live on discord.gg forward slash great GM every Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. British summertime, uh, which uh, is whatever time it is in your part of the world. Uh, it's probably not 5 p.m. or British summertime, but you can still join us nonetheless. We don't hold grudges. We don't care what time zones you're in. We just care that you're here and uh, relaxing and enjoying and talking about our amazing amazing hobby now this week we ran the poll on the youtube community tab which is where we run the poll every week for what topic we want to talk about and listed amongst the topics was professional gming or and the topic that was actually chosen inspiration versus appropriation now the only reason why it was actually put onto the poll is that these are these are things that we discover or learn about uh, as as a team here at um, how to be a great gm uh, throughout the course of the week and it is an interesting topic when you look at it from the point of view of a professional product now, if you are at home and you are playing your game and you feel that you want to use uh, the cultural iconography of, I don't know, let's choose uh, the Maoris, for example, all the way down south um, in New Zealand, are you going to get accused of cultural appropriation? Should you even be accused of cultural appropriation? If you're using the tattoos and their famous um, war cry, the, the haka, I think it's called, uh, is, that, is that something that we should be worried about? Is that something that, that we really need to, to step back and say, well, no, we can't use that because no one at the table is a Maori? I think that that borders on insanity, personally, because I would then argue, well, then I can't ever use something that comes from Ireland, or I can't use anything that comes from Scotland because I'm not Scottish, although my ancestors were. So we can't go down that route. I think when we start talking about appropriation, it's when we start to use the culture, the iconography, the, the entomology, whateverology you want to use, when we start to use that without understanding where it comes from. And I think a very good example of that is in the Indian, um, in many of the Indian cultures, uh, Hinduism and so on, the symbol for the sun is actually a reverse swastika. Now, if you don't know your history, if you don't know your cultures, you might look at that and go, oh, it's the Nazi swastika. Meanwhile, it actually isn't. It's the Hindu symbol for the sun. So without any kind of education, if you just start using these symbols, it can become problematic. And I think that really is where things start to go wrong. And that is also a case of saying, OK, well, we're just going to use this individual as a uh, representation of pure evil. And we're going to draw that from Norse mythology. And meanwhile, that individual had nothing to do with evil or with uh, negative attitudes and was actually a ray of sunshine and positivity. I think that for me is really where we start to have to step back and go, actually, let's have a look at it. And again, in your home operations, it's very unlikely that this is going to become a point of sore uh, contact simply because your players can go, hey, I really don't appreciate you using the symbol of uh, the cross, for example, 
as a uh, happy symbol of joy and coming togetherness and um you know we 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 throw goblins onto those crosses and the goblins are all carpenters i think that's that's not appropriate that i think and would say well i don't think it is appropriate if your group is finding that problematic it's when you start to get into the realm of the professional, into the realm of publication, that's where I think we need to be very careful. And the reason for that is oftentimes it's confusing for the average user to get a module or to buy something from the DMs Guild, open it up and see the complete misrepresentation of a culture or to see something that is of cultural significance completely and utterly misused and misrepresented or demeaned or used for comic relief or something along those lines. So that, I think, is where our biggest safeguard in terms of appropriation comes from. And that is to simply say, have you done your research? Have you done the necessary legwork to look at what it is that you're taking and to then incorporate that. And the reason, another reason why, and everybody who listens to my channel will know this, the more research you do, the more empowered you are to make even more interesting decisions rather than just randomly Google searching uh, evil symbol and then pulling the first thing that comes up and then not ever actually exploring where that evil symbol comes from. Because what you might find is that that symbol isn't evil, it's good, but the evil symbol for that particular culture is even more horrific than something that you came up with. So a very small little journey has suddenly led you down a rabbit hole, which has not only educated you, but now empowered you to then explain to anybody who asks questions to say, oh, well, actually, this symbol means this, and this comes from here, and that comes from there. So that, to me, is, is the real power that we have when we start looking at this. Uh, let me just have a look and see what the chat is saying, if anything. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think the other idea is is um, coding things uh, that are are analogs of real life. So when we talk about doing accents, is it appropriate to do an accent? Is there the sense that we're stealing from a culture or we're demeaning a culture by performing a different accent? Well, to be perfectly honest with you, I personally have nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with it. But that's because I'm not using the accents in my game in any kind of demeaning way whatsoever. I use it for the NPC or I use it for the species. And because I don't think that we really have an understanding of accents when it comes to our glorious planet, no one really knows the sounds and things. I will never forget when I moved to Japan, I had in my head the sound of what Japanese people speaking English sounds like. That came very much from television. And when you actually live there, that is not the correct accent at all. As a matter of fact, I would put on my Japanese accent and my Japanese partner at the time would go, I'm not sure what you're trying to sound like, but you don't sound like anything that I know. As opposed to times where I have put on accents of, say, the Swedish, and my Swedish friends have gone, please stop doing that, only because it reminds us of our parents. And we don't speak like that anymore. So there we go. It's, it's again, I think that in context, one has to be respectful. One has to draw inspiration from these things, not mockery, but to look at them and to understand them and to go, yes, this is much, much cooler. And to, to, to then say... 
Why do we feel that this is, is, is this sound or why do we need that sound? And then to say, I'm not stealing a German-speaking person's accent. This is the accent of my dwarves. Again, if you then start to link in all of the German cultural things as well, the Lederhosen and things that you really feel that you want to add in, if you don't make them your own, if you're just carbon copying, I think that that's a problem too. So we need to take things and we need to understand where those things come from. We need to pay respect to what those things are and then use them. And I think that is the, really the only way to go about it. I think I've made my point here in terms of not wanting to repeat the same thing over and over and over again. If you're in a public space, things change quite dramatically, though. And so I think I'm going to move on to that particular topic because there were a lot of people asking for it as well. In terms of being a professional GM, in terms of being a public performance GM or a GM for hire, that's where things start to get very different. And I think uh, you can ask several people that are listening and chat uh, this, this exact same experience has happened to them, I'm sure. The moment you switch on a camera or you turn on a microphone and you put yourself out there, you are opening yourself up to the world. And that means you will have people who go, I feel that you are dis uh, dismissing my culture. I feel that you are doing this or I feel that you're doing that. The only right approach is to interrogate that statement, is to explore that statement, is to research what that statement is saying, and then make a decision on your own as to whether you misstepped or the, maybe you didn't. I have learned on the YouTube channel, there are some things that I did which I wish I hadn't done, but by doing them and causing people distress, I have learned from them so that I don't ever do it ever again. It had nothing to do with cultural appropriation. It was making commentary on public figures, which, in truth, my YouTube channel has nothing to do about that. And so that's something that I shouldn't have actually included. So when you come to being a professional GM, the very first thing that you're going to have to decide is what is your rate? What is your fee? How much should you be charging? And should you actually be charging for it? I'm not going to go into the debate of should we have professional GMs or GMs for hire? Should we have them? Shouldn't we have them? That's not a debate that's worth having anymore, simply because they exist and I happen to be one. I do make a, a decent living off of the amount of money that I make from charging folks for playing in my games. However, I think that a lot of people, when they think about the idea of a professional GM, they assume that we're just running our games exactly the same as we would if we were running for our friends back at home. Nothing could be further from the truth. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, at the time of this recording, I have a friend of mine staying with me in London who used to play in my games in South Africa. And went, oh, yeah, I remember the games in South Africa. They were super cash. They were super fun. They were cool. They were epic. They did what they needed to do. But you only ever had a Chessex battle map, which was a blank canvas that I could draw on. And you never had portraits of the NPCs. We had some minis, but that was by accident, and we very seldom used them. I played music because, well, I just liked doing it. But there was no conscious decision. There was no definite attempt to improve the atmosphere that my players were experiencing, except once or twice when I was trying out something different. 
Now, the games that I run for my, my players who pay to be in my games, every week they get battle maps that I spend several hours working on to make them look as good as possible. They get character portraits, they get NPC portraits. I can't still use music, but that's because of a technological limitation rather than anything else, but I would if I could. They get as much effort as I possibly can do to make that game as memorable as an experience as an experience as possible. If I look at what I did in Dungeons and Dragons or D&D in a castle and which I will be doing again in October, that was a full-on show. That was me as an employee, as a service provider, as an entertainer, running a game for the players. We had minis, custom printed minis. We had battle maps. We had terrain pieces. We had portraits. We had D&D Beyond. We had all the bells and whistles. I even brought, bought a portable speaker so that I could play music, which I curated to make sure that it tried to fit the scene that I was trying to run. I would put in extra effort to make sure that I had prepped beforehand and after and I would review the game and I would try and make sure that I was bringing stuff on track and I would consciously sit back and put a huge amount of effort into making sure that everybody at the table was getting as much time as humanly possible. Did I succeed or not? I think I did because my players at the end of the session went, this was amazing. We want to fly you over to the States so you can run another weekend's worth of gaming for us. And you go, okay, that's great. But if I'm flying over to the US and I'm running games for you, that's more of my time that's being taken up. So there is going to be a fee attached to that. Once you are in the realm of being paid, though, things take on quite a different turn. I will never forget when I first started to do a paid game and players could join. I had players who just didn't gel. Their culture in terms of gameplay was almost an opposition. It was a very awkward few games. I didn't know how to control it because, well, these were people who were paying me. And so I kind of wanted to let them do what they wanted to do. This is completely the wrong approach, by the way. They are paying you to play in your game the way you run your game. And if they don't fit into your game, they should leave. I know it's very tempting to go, oh, but they're paying $50 a game or whatever the, the fee might be that you're charging, but they are there for the experience. And everybody else at the table is paying for that experience as well. So if you get one bad apple, you have to prune that apple straight away. Now, if you had your friends playing and it was a casual game, well, you might have a few words with them later on, or you might just dismiss them as being, it's just Bob, Bob is Bob. And everyone just moves on from that. With a paid-for game, you are, you are providing a service, and your players are expecting that level of service. Now, you might get players who go, no, 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 I just want this to be like your home game. No, you really don't. My home game is just casual play, and sometimes there's plot holes and things, and my players might call me out on it, and I go, oh, yeah, 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 sorry, I forgot about that. Let me redo that, or let's move on, and, and or let the, the NPC does this. 
I, I stopped doing that long ago. I realized that if you make a mistake, that's not a mistake. It is a, an actual feature of the campaign that the NPC completely forgot what happened last week. And there's a reason for it. They've been cursed with amnesia because someone is trying to stop the party from getting information. I, I mean, there's a whole bunch of ways that you can weasel your way out of it. I mean, creatively provide alternative adventure opportunities for the players. Nonetheless, that is all part and parcel of it. So how do you know how much to charge? There is no right answer here. There is no GM's guild that says, well, your players should be paying £10 a head or $20 a head or $25 a head for a three-hour game, a four-hour game, a six-hour game. This is all pie-in-the-sky kind of stuff. It is what you make it. So if you feel that your time is worth $25 a player or $225 a table, and that is going to be a one-hour game, and you get people who are willing to pay that, then that's what your rate is. At the same time, if you feel that your rate is worth $5 per game, then you've got $25 in four hours. Minimum wage is better than that in some countries. So why are you then doing this? I feel that when we look at people like Matthew Mercer or the new fellow who is running games on that channel, I, I constantly forget names. I'm very bad with names. So you look at these big professional GMs who were professional voiceover artists beforehand. Uh, thank you. Uh, Brennan Lee Mulligan. Um, someone in chat reminded me on that one. You look at these people and you go these are amazing gms and you go yes these are amazing public performers who happen to be running a game of dungeons and dragons they would be equally as engaging equally as powerful if they were simply doing a radio recording and we were watching them do a radio recording because they're professionals and they are following through they are also working together to collectively create a show rather than to play Dungeons and Dragons. That happens to be the vehicle in which they are performing. So a lot of times you look at these channels and you go, oh, I want to be like Matthew Mercer. Well, sure, you want to be a public performer. That's absolutely fine. I suggest you start with some kind of public theater. That will certainly help you. And that will definitely increase your game. If you go and study theater or acting or performance, you will have a better gaming experience. There's no doubt about it because there is room in our game simply for performance. So if you're a better performer, you are by default going to present a better appearing kind of game. Now, in so far as what do you have to prepare, what don't you have to prepare, I think that's entirely up to you as well. I always look at it and I say, well, would I pay someone to run a game for me? Uh, personally, it's a difficult answer. It's a difficult question to answer because I've always had a group of friends to play with. Or I have had my YouTube channel and I always have people willing to play with me. So I've never had a situation where I don't. At the same time, a lot of people who commission me to run games for them, it's almost like, a oh, let's have a session where none of us have to be the GM and we want a GM to come in and we want a GM who's going to be different, who's going to have a different approach or who's going to have a different level to their game. Hence, all of the minis and the maps and those kinds of things. So, I also want to say that the, the critical thing 
is once you start running these games, once you start being a professional GM, your home games then start to change. But certainly in my experience, I don't have any home games. I don't run any home games. And I really wish I could. I've written my own role-playing system for my fiancé. And we've played it once during playtesting. And that was because it was for work, rarely. It wasn't just because, hey, let's role-play together. It's killing my soul. At the same time, the games that I'm running, the two, the two games that I'm running, are both epic campaigns that are going to take a long time to finish playing out. I'm really enjoying running them. I've got really lucky. My players are engaging. They're, they're different in terms of their approaches to things. But at the same time, they're a great bunch of people who I would love to hang out with on a regular basis, not just as their professional GM. But I can't run more than two games. It's simply insanity for me. My games are usually quite complicated in terms of the politics and the narratives. And although I do have my shorthand for trying to keep them all in check, it's simply, to me, it becomes insane to run more than that. So once you start down that journey of running professional games or running games online for people to watch that starts to creep in. You start to lose the ability to actually run a game at home. Once you then go online and people are watching you, and I don't know if Dead Aussie Gamer is still in, in chat or not, but once you start doing that, then forget about having fun running this game. You have an audience who are expecting you to perform your game at the time that you said you were going to do it every single week. And so it might be fun doing it. And it's a huge, huge amount of fun doing live shows. But they're very, very different from playing the game around your table. You have to, once again, have the performance level in terms of you've got to have battle maps, you've got to have visuals, you've got to have all of the things that are going to keep your audience engaged. Again, this is if you're wanting to try and build a large following or get people really sort of activated in your community. You've got to have overlays. You've got to have the nice-looking layout of the character portraits and things. This is just a natural evolution of our consumerist space that we're in. When I look at it, the very first time that I was uh, running games online, we were recording them on our cell phones and editing them together and then posting them up, sometimes weeks after having done it. Once we started to go live, that's when we started to realize the power of being live and of audience interaction, which is really fun and really cool, let me tell you. But again, it's no longer role-playing. You are now performing and you are now producing something for a community. And the hardest thing that I have ever had to do in terms of role-playing is to actually stop a stream and go, folks, we've been doing this for 12 weeks, or we've been doing this for 30 weeks, or we've been doing this for this many channels, or channels, this many years, and now we have to stop. And we have to stop because I want to take a break from performing every week. And your audience members are invested. They are absolutely loving what you're doing, hopefully, if you're doing it, if you're doing it well. And you're going, well, sorry, that's it. The show is canceled or is taking a permanent hiatus, which is just a fancy word for canceled. 
and that's sometimes very very sad uh because it's not just you and your five players or six players now it's you and a whole bunch of people so there are a lot of implications to this whole professional gm kind of thing you then look at it and you say all right if you are charging let's say you are charging 50 us dollars per player at your table and you've got four players so that's 200 dollars for a game you run a game in four hours are you likely to be able to run two games a day? Maybe, yes or no, not likely. Uh, simply because there aren't people available in the mornings to play games sometimes, or they're not available in the afternoons or in the evenings. Theoretically, I suppose you could play three games a day. So are you making huge amounts of money? No, you're not. And you're producing all of these maps and all these other kinds of things. But that might not be enough to actually sustain your income. And if you run ad hoc groups where so you go to a, a gaming cafe where you run a group during the week or, or on the weekend, again, it might not be enough to sustain you. So then you have to look for alternative avenues. That could be in content creation. So you go and start doing stuff on the DMs Guild, for example, or you go and do your own stuff and you try and sell that on your own, or you try and write your own books and release your books on Kickstarter. Those are all viable avenues. Again, though, what we've seen in the last five years, having played in this space ourselves, is that it's gone from being a handful of folk who were able to release their own content, to release their own books that looked good and professional, to now pretty much anybody who has an hour or two to spare to watch the YouTube videos, to download the free software, the free templates, and to make their books look just like a D&D book. So the market is quite saturated too. And it's only going to get more saturated as people realize, hang on a moment, why should I work for minimum wage when I can run games and get people to pay, to pay me to run these games? Well, sure, absolutely. Why should you? Well, when you're going to see the market becoming very, very saturated, we're going to see the market going, well, why should I pay you and why shouldn't I pay that person? Now, I know in London there is already a company that specializes in providing GMs for play. They have a, a group of GMs and you sign up and you book a GM for a one shot or for a this or a that. So we are already seeing these organizations starting to form. There are online portals, again, names escape me, where you can sign up to pay to play. And you have a GM who arrives at the allocated time and you have your fellow players whom you may or may not know. And then you all play the game. So it is an industry that is growing. It is an industry I don't think that we have yet seen the peak of. I think we are still growing in that space as it becomes more and more and more uh, saturated as as more people become aware of it as it grows in the public space. I definitely think that that is going to be a space that is that is going to grow. I guess. Um, so yes, that is that is. That is where we're at, I think, as professional GMs. Now, if you have any questions on any of this, please drop a question into chat. Um, I see there's a, a question. Is there a golden ratio of story, player, special effects, composition to earn more of an audience? I think that what you're asking there is the grand question. How do you build an audience? How do you grow an audience? How do you gain an audience? And... Today, it's a lot harder than it was three or four years ago. 
three or four years ago, you didn't have a choice. There were maybe 20 or 30 video streams going on out there. Nowadays, there are 20 or 30 video streams going on out there every hour. You are spoiled for choice. And as a good example, I was sort of looking around. I found this alliance of LGBT creators where just in that little alliance, there are 10 live shows a week. And you go, okay, that's on that one very specific topic. What about on just playing D&D modules? Oh, well, there are 50 or 60 or 70 per day in every single different time zone. One of the things that I have noticed, however, which is absolutely critical if you are going to be doing some kind of live show, is the quality of your audio. Forget your video. Forget your visuals. Yes, it would be nice if you had fancy overlays and fancy graphics and you've plugged into the D&D Beyond stuff and there's all that kind of cool stuff. That certainly hypes up your space uh, and it, it makes you look as if you're one of the more professional thousands of streams out there as opposed to the homebrew thousands of streams that are out there. But if your audio is poor or if it's quiet or if it's crackly or if there are noises in the background that you just don't really want to have there like screaming children or barking dogs or barking dogs at screaming children it's just something that you don't want it's going to cause problems now i see another comment in chat is that the dnd market is hugely saturated i want to see other systems being played i would love to play other systems. As a GM, and I tried on my channel, when I used to do live plays, when I used to do one-shot plays, we would take other role-playing systems and we would play them. You get a third of the audience watching. A third. So if you are looking at your metrics, if you're looking at your, your value of viewership, you go D&D episode, let's say 3,000 viewers. Great, D&D episode, 3,000 viewers. Dragon Age role-playing game, a thousand viewers. And all that that happens is that your average viewership is then calculated at 2,000. So instead of having the good value, you've now got the worst kind of, of value. That is slowly changing. A good friend of mine, Seth Skorkowski, his channel is focused specifically on Traveler and on the Conan series, and he has grown. He has not grown as fast as he would have if he was doing Dungeons & Dragons. Another very good friend of mine, whose name will remain anonymous, was dedicated to role-playing with just the one system, not Dungeons & Dragons. And I went and said, look, that's great, but I've got a slot on a Dungeons & Dragons show, so if you switch over to Dungeons & Dragons, I can give you the gig. Well, the person in question switched over to Dungeons & Dragons and saw a huge growth in their channel. It is just what it is. Now, unless you have a massive following, you're going to struggle. You are a niche within a niche looking for niche viewers. And the other challenge is that viewers like to know what's happening. And they won't if it's a new role-playing system. It becomes problematic. So... We look at all of those kind of things. It seems like it is a huge topic. It seems like it is something that is impossible to do. But none of it's impossible to do. We all started doing it by making it up as we were going along. There are still no rules that have ever been written down, as least as far as I know. And if there are rules, show them to me. I would love, love to see that. Um, so, you know, 
let's 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 see but there are no rules the only thing that i can tell you is that you will never be a professional dm you will never have a live stream if you don't start just doing it and you won't have it if you don't continue to do it that's the big thing is if you don't carry on doing it it's not worth it it's not going to survive people will forget about it they will move on and they will go somewhere else because people are looking for content they're looking to be entertained the whole idea that people will be loyal my youtube channel i think relies entirely on the loyalty of the amazing folk who come and find the videos and find the channel and then watch stuff but if it's not on air for three weeks they're gonna go look for something else to fill up that one hour or two hour or three hour and then they'll stay at the new place because they're starting to invest their time there. Anyway, those are my thoughts for this week. I hope you find them useful or entertaining in some shape or form. Thank you all for participating in the live chat. I know I didn't get to many kind of questions and things. Uh, there is one, are you ever planning a campaign session? You just get stumped on what to do. Yes, I do. And I have lots of videos on inspiration. So uh, I suggest you check them out. Uh, four ways to improve your imagination, those kind of things. Um, that's to, to that one question. Anyway, uh, first Folks, it's been fun. I will see you all next week for another live show. Bring your questions, bring your thoughts. And if you want to vote on the topic, remember you can find that at the YouTube community tab for how to be a great GM. Until next week, I wish you and yours the very happiest of gaming.